today's pod, I'm reconnecting with my friend Jen. Jen is curious about what's going on, what's IVF, and as a friend, how she can best support us. Here we go. Are you going to have music? Dun, 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 fried eggs podcast. <laughs> yes, I picked it out, so I'll share it with you. Oh my God, you really did. Oh, absolutely. That was <laughs> the thing that I had to do before I wrote down my first episode idea about my fried eggs. Like, where have we been and what is IVF and all these things. But then as soon as I started talking about it, I was like, this is funny. Like I need to tell somebody because I'm certain that somebody has questions about whatever went on and what, what's happening now. And I figured you would be a great person to share it with. Yeah. Cause I want to know all the things. And it's funny because working in diversity and inclusion, we're always coming up across people who like want to be friends and allies and understand and experience. But this is one too, where I find myself thinking, what is safe to ask? You know, this is a very vulnerable topic for so many people and you don't want to offend or like pick at wounds that are, that may be super fresh. And so I appreciate having a safe place to ask questions too. Well, ask away, Jen. I'm here to share. Well, okay. First of all, we've been friends for a long time. Yes. And we've been close friends for a long time from my perspective. No, I agree. <laughs> and it's funny because I think very generally speaking, I would not necessarily describe you as someone who's like super vulnerable. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So I think you share openly and that there are moments of vulnerability when things kind of pile up. But you present as someone who like has it together, it's really planful, you know, like will not be weak in any circumstance unless you actually are weak and can't stand it any longer. So like what prompted you to get to the place where you wanted to share like really openly what your experience was? Basically, I started oversharing about what was going on with IVF and, you know, we're in times of COVID, so there's really limited entertainment. So to me, like doing (laughs) shots every night was pretty entertaining and just, you know, psyching myself up like, this is awesome. I can do it. I can do anything. And then it just kind of became a thing where I was like, hey, I'm sure people have questions about what this is and why I'm doing it. So I figured I would share and then when I started sharing, people started reaching out more and they were like, oh, I'm doing something like this or I've done something like this and nobody ever talks about it. I'm going to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because I don't know why it's such a secret. Like I'm not ashamed of what's going on with us. There are tons of people going through it and you often feel alone, but you should never feel alone because you are certainly not the only person. (laughs) That's right. And so, okay, for those who don't know, talking to an audience here, presumably. For those who don't know, you do have one beautiful baby and you did not go through IVF to get Lorelei. What was that experience like for you kind of getting to first baby and then the path thereafter and trying to have another? I think secondary infertility is the most frustrating thing. I'm sure primary infertility is too, or whatever it's called, but it's like my body has done it before. So why can't I do it again? And when we got pregnant with Lorelai, it did take us some time. Like I was traveling, I was never home. So I don't know if there was an issue before and we just got super lucky and she's like a unicorn. Through all the things that have happened, we've learned that my eggs are just really bad. So I have, you know, I've been having some conversations about 
trying to get pregnant and what fertility options are out there because my husband has a vasectomy and so there's things to consider there um, and wanting to understand what options are. But how do you get, and I've learned through that process with insurance companies, with doctors, et cetera, there's a lot of steps that they want to see you take before considering IVF Mm -hmm. has been my experience. So what has been your journey up to this point to even decide to get to the point where you choose to proceed with IVF? And what are some things that you had to weigh to come to that decision? So shortly after Lorelai turned one, Oliver and I were like, hey, let's have another. Like we kept one alive. We can do it again. She turned one in November. And in December, I had my IUD taken out because we were like, it's going to take us a while. Like I'm not going to get pregnant right away, just like the first time. Then in January, I found out I was pregnant. It was just a crazy time. Like we were super excited and I would have never thought that I would have had a miscarriage. So at our eight-week appointment, we went in and you know, like the funny thing is the day before I was swimming at the pool and I was like, something doesn't feel right. And so we go in for the appointment. She's taking forever trying to find this baby and Oliver's already with the camera to like record the first baby picture and all that stuff. And the doctor just kind of pauses and like sits me up and she was like, okay, so there's an empty sack and it could be one of three things. So then after that, we had a DNC and they had collected the products of conception, which is just basically saying like all the baby tissue that doesn't exist anymore. And we sent it to the lab for testing because I really wanted to know what happened. And it came back that it was a boy with trisomy 16. So like an extra chromosome on on the 16th. And so then they said, you know, wait for your next cycle and then you guys can try again. And I waited and I waited and my period never came back. So that was kind of weird. Just felt like something was wrong. And we went back to my OB and she started me on Provera to jumpstart my cycle and everything was fine. But in the back of my head, I just, I just kept thinking something was not right. And we kept trying and nothing was happening. And so she finally referred me to my first RE my reproductive endocrinologist. And she did a saline ultrasound just to check if there was any scarring from the DNC or if there was anything to be concerned about. And there was nothing wrong. So I just remember leaving that meeting kind of mad because she just looked at me and she was like, you're fine. You're young. You're healthy. Go home and pee on more ovulation sticks. And I was livid. I decided to go to another reproductive endocrinologist and they did some diagnostic testing and the guy was like, you have fibroids, you need to get rid of them. So I had a myomectomy in November, like the day before Lorelai's second birthday. And they said, okay, wait three months to recover. And then you guys can try again. So in February of this year, um, we went to the appointment and I got all clear to try again. And we got pregnant on the first try again. So this was roughly like March when I found out and I was in the back of my head I was like there's no way that I could ever be pregnant because there's something way wrong and we had started seeing a new reproductive endocrinologist in March and the crazy thing is at our appointment she was like okay come in when on the first day of your cycle or call us and then we'll do blood work and all that stuff and I was like oh yeah no problem like I'm due sometime later this week my period did not come so then on Friday of that week I was like, this is weird. And I really want to go to hot yoga, but I don't want to <laughs> like fry my baby if I'm pregnant. So I took a test and I was pregnant. 
So I kind of freaked out because I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to go to this new doctor or go to my regular Mm -hmm. OB. Mm -hmm. And this was also early on when COVID was happening. I ended up going to get my blood work done by my OB. And then at the same time, my RE's office called and they were like, hey, come to us. We'll take care of you. We'll monitor you more closely. They monitored my blood work every other day to make sure my beta levels were going up and they're supposed to double every other day and my levels were not. So we ended up maybe like week five. Um, I started progesterone and a bunch of other things to kind of help along the way. But I remember the call, the nurse said something like to the effect of this is not going to be a viable pregnancy. Mm. By week six, I went in for the ultrasound, and at this time, they weren't allowing partners to go in with you, so you had to go alone, and we did the ultrasound, and it was another empty sack. We ended up, I think like week seven, they sent me home with a kit to collect at home because the hospitals were not doing elective surgeries, so I couldn't have a DNC like I did the first time. And Uh, what does DNC stand for? DNC is dilation and curatage. It's basically where you get drugged up, they give you a little drug nap, and the doctor will, usually like your OB or an RE, will dilate your cervix, and then they scrape out the uterine lining. So it just removes all the contents that are in your uterus. At the hospital that I went to for it, they wheel you into labor and delivery. So Mm. the last sign that you see is labor and delivery when you're going to go and basically have not a baby come out of you. And the first time we were there was when I had Lorelai. So I have this like wonderful memory that's now erased by a terrible memory. Yeah. So late March, early April of 2020, they gave you some misoprostol or something like that. And it basically is stuff that you would insert into your vagina and it induces you to have a miscarriage. So that's what I did on a Friday and it was not a pleasant experience. I ended up bleeding for six weeks. Like the state of Illinois went into a stay in place order uh, roughly at the end of March, I think. And I basically miscarried the entire time we were in a stay in place order. That's a lot to go through. Global pandemic, having a miscarriage at home. Yeah. And then, so with that, we were able to collect the products of conception that way too. When we took them to the doctor's office and they sent them to the lab, and then a couple weeks back, we got the results that it was a girl with a micro deletion. So at that point, Oliver and I were like, well, we could keep trying on our own, but chances are it's not going to result into anything great. Like we're just going to end up doing this all over again. Same with IUI, which was another option for us. And I felt the same way, like, okay, great, but I could end up with triplets and also all of them miscarrying. So why wouldn't we just go forward with IVF? Because with IVF, yes, you're taking a bunch of eggs, but you're kind of weeding through the bad eggs to find the good ones so Mm -hmm. that it kind of reduces the chances of a miscarriage. Sometimes people think, oh, you're doing IVF, you won't have a miscarriage. And that's not necessarily true. Did you find that doctors present IVF as kind of the final chance? I think as a patient, I do. I feel like IVF is the end all be all. But I think a lot of doctors 
do a very good job laying out the likelihood of success for each of them. And the doctor that I'm with now, she's wonderful and didn't pressure us to do anything. She just laid out the facts simply of here's the percentage of if you try on your own and what the outcomes could be. And here are the things with IVF. So, so you went through all of that and that's a big, a great summary of kind of your journey up to this point. And then you went through IVF, right? And so what did that look like and where are you at with that now? So we just wrapped up our first round. The crazy thing is we probably would have started in March and we ended up starting in July. And that's because after my miscarriage, we did a saline, well, we did normal ultrasound and baseline so that you can get started with the IVF process. But when I went in for the ultrasound, they were like, oh, there's something weird with your uterus. The lining was a little thicker than normal, so they sent me in for another saline ultrasound just to make sure everything was okay, and it turned out that I had products of conception still in me. So then I had to wait for a hysteroscopy for them to remove it. When they reopened, I want to say like May, June, there was this huge flood of people wanting to get procedures done. So I couldn't go in until beginning of July. And yeah, the planner that you are, I'm sure was not happy with that. (laughs) No, it just constantly felt like every box we checked, like, you know, go do this, have surgery, go do this, have blood work. Like I checked all the boxes and then every time it just felt like another box was being added for fun. And I'm like, this isn't Mm -hmm. fun for me. This isn't like, I'm supposed to be pregnant right now. (laughs) So we started prep at the end of July and then I did stims in the beginning slash mid of August. And then we did our- Tell us what stims are. Oh yeah. So stims are basically when you are just pumping yourself with all the lady drugs. So you're making way more eggs for the doctor to then go retrieve at the end of the two weeks. Then they do that by using a probe, like a ultrasound probe through your vagina and then a needle. And then it goes to your ovary and just kind of sucks out all these little follicles that you've been growing. Got it. So when, when you say that, what it makes me think of is like growth hormones, like with meat and buying it at the store, but theoretically (laughs) with IVF, it's meant to still, it's meant to grow faster, but they would still be like as healthy or comparable to what you would do on your own. Yeah. So because you're getting so many of them, it's kind of a nice way to weed out the bad ones. So after your retrieval, they tell you how many were retrieved. So we had 23, which is a great number. Um, Did they give you any expectation of like the range of numbers you might expect? Yeah. So my doctor, I think she had initially said I would expect like 10 to eight with my levels. But then after day one is when they fertilize those and then I had 12 of those. And what I've heard is that they tend to like to see more. So like maybe 70 or 75%. And I don't Mm. know if these numbers are truly accurate. So people have to like talk to their own doctor. But I think I was just a little below average on that one. And then out of the 12, eight of them fertilized. So that was a really good number for us. Like I honestly didn't think that we were going to get that many And then on day three, they call you just to let you know how things were going. And looking back at it, I wish that I had asked more questions about how things were going at day three, 
because I just assume like, okay, eight, that means that everything is healthy and everything is good. And then on day six, they call this again with the final result of whatever was going to get biopsied for the PGT. And we ended up with just one embryo. So the rest- How did you feel at that point? You'd been optimistic. Your numbers seemed really- good. Your percentage wasn't ideal, but it was still kind of like a high number. So it seems like you're optimistic. And then you come down to this one, like, how are you feeling at that point in the process? I was devastated. I think I cried all day or maybe like two days. I don't even know, but it was hard because I was so optimistic with eight. I was like, well, at least get one or two. And I feel like my doctor kind of, she seemed optimistic, like, oh yeah, like you'll definitely get a couple out of these. And the day that we received our news on day six, it was also our eight-year wedding anniversary. So I literally was joking before the call, like, ha-ha, that would be so funny if we had eight embryos on our eight-year anniversary. <laughs> and I was like, what? just kidding. We're just going to have one. When they called and said you had one, I was like, wait, say that again? <laughs> like, I didn't want to believe them. And so the seven, they said like they, they made it, but they just weren't good quality. Like they wouldn't have resulted in a pregnancy. So I'm assuming that under the scope, they kind of just didn't look good. And the one that we did have looked good. We had hope in that one. And I kept telling myself, you know, it only takes one. It could be our golden egg. We can't think negative about it yet. (laughs) And so it's, awful because you have to wait two weeks for the test results. And sometimes you get them sooner. Our clinic sends the biopsy to the lab within 24 hours. I think that the lab was trying to call me much sooner. So about a week later, I I actually answered a call from the lab and gave them all my payment information. But that Wednesday before, the lab had called and I thought it was spam, so I didn't answer. And then Friday, the week before I went to acupuncture, And I'm just laying there during my 30 minute session and the lab called and I thought it was spam again, but I was like, oh, like it could be the lab. So I'm going to go home and just, you know, Google the number or see if they're going to leave me a message. So they didn't leave me a message. And when I Googled the number, it didn't say the lab name. So I was like, okay, whatever. And then when they called the third time, I was like, okay, this probably is the lab. I've just been (laughs) ignoring them. Which it was. Yeah. So when they called, they were like, oh, yeah, your, you know, test results are in. We need you to pay us and we can send your clinic the information. (laughs) Even just to pull up the gate to send information they just needed. Needed some money. Yes. That's basically what I think IVF feels like to me is give me all the monies. Yeah. And so you got your results. I did. And basically our one embryo was abnormal and that was really crushing because I thought for sure I had like convinced myself that that was it. We only needed one and all along we just wanted one more. So we certainly did not need eight embryos because like what would we do with the eight? (laughs) Just wanted one and when it came back abnormal, Of course, I asked like what was wrong with it and what sex was it because I always have to know and it had (laughs) a missing 22nd chromosome. Most likely it came from the egg. Like I'm certain it came from me and it was a boy. And I feel like I always have to know what the sex is. Like Oliver doesn't care. He, I think he prefers not knowing, 
but I always have to know. And I think it is partially because I have to like imagine what it would have been like. And I think the other half is like, I have to feel the pain of knowing. Yeah, you're like, you're humanizing that experience. I feel like I just have to know. So what does the conversation or what did the conversation look like with your doctor after that? I think I had a lot of questions because I was under this crazy assumption that we were going to be one and done. Like I would not need to do several rounds of IVF in order to find a healthy embryo. And I think that's just a misconception a lot of people have. Like, it's going to be a sprint. I was ready to give away all of my drugs. I don't need these anymore. We're going to have everything we need the first round. And so the conversation with our doctor is like, what happened? What are we going to do next time if we decide to do another round of IVF? And like, what are the chances? Were we just like insanely unlucky or does this happen? Right. If so, I think we kind of came to a crossroads of if my chances of finding some healthy eggs is very low, then let's just call it quits. Like, why would we do that to ourselves? And trying and trying when there's like a 1% chance or something, you know, really bad. But she said, you know, there's like a 50 to 60% chance we can find them. We just have to look a little harder. And so our second round of IVF that will start in October, we're going to add human growth hormone. And I've been taking some other supplements to hopefully improve egg quality. And I'd like to think that if it does not happen this round, we will just be done because we have, like you said, I have Lorelai and she's amazing. So why would I focus all this energy and pain to try to make something that just will not happen? So I feel like you know, the medical part of it is one part of the conversation and you find a good doctor and you're getting good information. But I know that there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of points of views on other things that can be effective, like lowering stress or getting acupuncture or eating leafy greens or whatever it is. What are some of the things that you've heard and or tried, if anything, and what are your attitudes kind of about some of that type of advice? Well, I've done acupuncture and I feel like a lot of people have too and have spoken highly of it. And I actually really enjoy it. I think it's just kind of a nice 30 minute break. I find it really relaxing. I've heard other books that say, you know, like, avoid any of these toxins like BPA and go gluten and dairy free and things like that too. And then you, you read other things or talk to other people who are like, it doesn't matter what you eat. Like if you have bad eggs, you have bad eggs. I feel like it it stresses you out more trying to make this like perfect environment. So yes, I try to eat a little better. I try to work out a little bit more, but not too strenuous. I, I just try to do things in moderation and hope for the best. And I hope that that's enough. Well, I think we both know that our Pelotons have had less love than normal. (laughs) Uh, And maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Maybe it's healthy. As a friend, you know, it's, it's definitely tougher because we live in different states now. And even if we did live in the same state, COVID (laughs) at this point, but you know, what, what support do you wish you had or what support did you have going through the process that was really helpful? Um, and even the converse of that, what are some things that people did maybe that 
were well-intentioned but not helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. I feel everybody's a little different, but for me, I felt so supported by everyone. Like all my friends were just cheering us on in in their own way. Um, People would send me these really amazing messages like, we're rooting for you. People would send me letters. My coworkers were amazing. They just were like, take as much time as you need. Like they would check in on me. So I think just acknowledging that someone's going through something hard is enough. And things that I didn't necessarily appreciate were like when people would joke about IVF, like, oh, are you going to have triplets or are you going to have quadruplets and have a TV show? It's not funny. IVF is not funny. People do IVF because they have no other choice. So another question for you, and I'm not going to, I don't mean this question to put your husband on blast, but, (laughs) and I know Oliver and he's an amazing husband to you and supportive in his own way. And you guys are a great balance for each other, but how has it been for him from your perspective? And maybe that would be something interesting to even have a chat with him at some point on what the journey looks like from where he sits. But what is your experience kind of like being married and going through this and at points where you feel kind of together or alone, or how do you talk about it? All of that type of stuff. I feel like I am an oversharer when it comes to things like this. The more you talk about it, the less stigma there is, or there's less weirdness about it. But he is definitely a little bit more private. He would not put this on Facebook. I mean, I didn't either. I put it on my Instagram and there's less people there. But (laughs) he went golfing with a friend of ours who follows me on Instagram. And they had a heart to heart chat about what was going on. And he was kind of like, oh, that was nice to talk about it with somebody in a more real way. And yeah, I think that's when maybe we turned a corner. I feel like before we just like didn't talk about it. And sometimes his silence to me made me feel like he didn't care or like he wasn't grieving. And now looking back at it, I'm like, oh, he was, he just was doing it in his own way. Yeah. Do you feel like Lolo has any sense of kind of what's going on or you know, sometimes I feel like kids are really sensitive to their environment and the feelings, the energy, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely not. I don't think she knows at all. While we were doing stims, or maybe it was towards the end and we were waiting for the results, I guess her class had did like a, do you have a brother or sister? And she was like, I have a brother. And then the teacher was like, does Lorelai have <laughs> siblings? And we were like, no, it's just her. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. oh, that's weird because she says she has a brother. <laughs> and like we used to kind of joke around with her like, Lolo, do you want a brother or a sister? Like while we were doing IVF. And she sometimes would say sister, but most of the time she would say brother. And I just don't think she's old enough to really get what's going on. When you think about going through this process again in October. What's coming up? What shows up for you? I feel hopeful. And I don't know if it's like a false sense of hope. And I think often a lot of us that are going through IVF or infertility, everything we have is just based off of hope that it'll work out and that you'll get to the end result that you're looking for. So initially we were kind of like, do we want to wait or do we want to do something now? And I have the energy and 
still like the drive in me to do it. So we were like, okay, more like I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. And Oliver was like, okay, <laughs> like if you really want to. He's just kind of supporting it. It's your body. So. Yeah. I mean, like what he's very supportive. Let me just time out and say that he's very supportive yeah. on my decision. And like, I think, I don't know if it's guilt or just like he feels bad that I have to carry the burden. So talk to me too a little bit about, you know, we are in the times of COVID, but one way to connect is kind of through social media or through groups. And I know you've connected me to some groups on Facebook that have been even great for me um, in other areas. So tell me a little bit about kind of like the, the IVF infertility community of women you've encountered? It's sort of like when you become a mom, all these people come out with mom groups. I would say it's the same thing as IVF or infertility, where I think I posted just a question, a simple question of where are the best pharmacies for IVF drugs? And people started PMing me on Facebook and they were like, oh, I have got extras. I will send them to you or come pick them up from my house. And I was like, what is this? I feel like a drug lord. But it was also exciting. Like, wow, like so many women go through it. And it was sort of uplifting at the same time. People just supporting each other, just acknowledging like this shit's hard and I have your back. So here's some drugs. Right. So I mentioned to you, I've had a couple of calls with with doctors just proactively around fertility options. And in talking with the comparison of doing something like um, a vasectomy reversal versus IVF, the cost is for a reversal is about a third for just a part of the process of IVF, not even everything kind of involved. So will you talk at least at a high level about kind of the cause, like your experience with insurance, you know, what is, what does some of that look like? Ugh, insurance. <laughs> really, That's the ask, usual response to insurance type questions. I know. And I know you asked me earlier about like, you know, things that stress me out and I'm like insurance 100% stressed me out more than anything. Like even when we were going through the process of trying to find progesterone to sustain a pregnancy that wasn't going to happen, which was very disappointing, but it's like finding the supplies, paying for them, they're crazy expensive. So my insurance had a lifetime max of 15,000 on drugs alone, on fertility drugs. And so we met that in our first round and it didn't even cover entirely the, all of the drugs that I needed if we were not paying insurance prices, we probably could have done two rounds. So I had shopped around to different pharmacies to get the meds that I needed for round two. And the cost out of pocket is probably like six or 7,000 for all the drugs. But Just under insurance, it was like 15 or a little bit more, which is... Oh, wow. I think the other thing people don't realize is that the freezing process, because we did the PGT, our embryo had to be frozen while it waited for the results. That costs money too. Every time you go in for a cycle and you freeze anything, that's a couple hundred. And then paying for the storage is a couple hundred, but you have to pay more money to get that paperwork done. <laughs> like this is just insane. I feel like 2020 has been the most expensive year and there's nothing to show for it. <laughs> That is saying a lot for you. 
<laughs> the most expensive year as you were shopping. Know. So it sounds like, I mean, I bet there's even line items where you're like, what is this thing that oh, yeah. I need to go to the doctor? There's just a huge cost. And not everyone's really privileged to even be able to consider IVF based on some of that. So good thing to at least research and understand for sure. And then you've got some people who insurance will cover all of their fertility stuff, and then they end up getting like extra drugs and giving them away. So, which I think is not legal. (laughs) So, I mean, you've, you've gone through a lot on your fertility journey up to this point. It's not done. Obviously there's more steps to take and a lot of uncertainty about what the future may bring, but what is some advice that you might give at this point based on what you've experienced to someone who might be just starting out? I think for me, I, I love my OB and I think I, I wish that I had gone to see a specialist sooner instead of being like, oh, okay, like everything's fine. She said everything was fine. So it must be, I think that I should have listened to my gut and just gone straight to a fertility specialist. And I don't know if people can necessarily do that if you have to like prove that something's wrong or whatever, but if it's possible, I would just go straight to a reproductive endocrinologist and try to see what was going on. And I think the other part is you're just not alone. You're, you're never alone. Find help, talk to other people, share your story, and hopefully you can help somebody else. Yay, I loved it. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, I hope that it provides you some insight for your DNI work. But Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as, as like a armchair psychologist, I'm always interested in like the emotional journey and the psychological journey. So I think, you know, with every step up to now, but also every step after now, I'd be really interested to see how you keep yourself, like how you balance being hopeful with the trauma that you've experienced? After my first miscarriage, I was really sad. I was devastated. But when I had my second one, I was way more guarded. Like I was not as excited as I wish that I could have been. It was completely replaced by all things that could go wrong. Like the anxiety of it and just the uncertainty on top of global pandemic and just not knowing and knowing all the bad things that could happen. So I feel like after the first one, it was sort of like, well, I already know the worst feeling possible. So nothing could be worse than that. Mm. I don't know how to explain it, but it just kind of felt like, meh, it's just another, (laughs) which is really awful. But the first one definitely just sucked it out of you. I mean, to me, that sounds normal, not related because I've I've never miscarried or like even had a baby inside of me that I know of, but just with the idea of like, you can't, in my mind, or in my opinion, sustain that level of trauma or hardship for a long period of time. Like at some point, there's a self-protect mode that you go into. But, you know, like, does that take away from you're pursuing it, right? You still have enough hope to keep trying. Yeah, I think part of it is when when I think of my family, or at least like before, I used to think of my family and I had this like image in my mind and it was the three of us plus the dog plus this like shadow figure, which would have been another kid. And sometimes that shadow figure disappears. And I think that's just me accepting that potentially it could just be the three of us plus dog. Like, and that's okay. Like I just have to accept it and move on. But then there are other times where 
I have these reoccurring dreams. So very psychological. You can analyze me later. <laughs> and it's like me having my C-section and Oliver holding a baby. And I'm like, that's, I think, what keeps me going. Just like the hope of that experience. Yeah. To, so I know you mentioned one more time, we're going to stay hopeful and optimistic and put all the positive energy out there. And, and know that like, that's your decision for now, but it doesn't have to be your decision always. If you decide to stop trying at some point, would you close one of your shops down? Um, yes. Oliver has said, if we're, if we're done, we're done. Like, not, don't even, like, have the option of trying anymore. Yeah. Because your body presumably would still continue to go through things. Or yeah. you would have more miscarriages or something like that. I imagine that you've also, like, seen and read a lot of fertility journey stories. Mm-hmm. Like, what have been the outcomes of other people that you've read that were, like, either interesting to you or hopeful to you or not? Yeah. <laughs> not great. I think a lot of people who might be at a stage where they don't have a child will end up pursuing adoption or an egg donor. And I think it just depends on their circumstances and what the issue might be. And I think that's just really, that's really great. I unfortunately am not in that headspace where I would want to adopt or have an egg donor. And I think I've just accepted the fact that I would move on with my life the way it is. Yeah. Do you have any close friends who have gone through this or is it primarily that you've reached out to just like people online? Yeah, I've had tons of people that are going through IVF or have gone through IVF or just have really crazy infertility stories. And when they share, I'm like, wow, that's so brave of them to share with everybody what's going on. And it makes me think that we need to just stop and talk about it and support one of one another because it's hard stuff and we just need to understand where people are coming from. I've mentioned to you that like, you know, Chris and I are starting to think about potentially trying to grow our family, two stepkids, um, but no biological kids. And I imagine that like if, if I did get pregnant, I wouldn't know how to tell you about that with the context of what you're going through. Yeah. How does that, how is that from your perspective? I feel like I see this question a lot. Like somebody is pregnant and their close friend is not. So how do you have that conversation? For me personally, I find it so much easier when people will text me or not tell me in person. Mm. I think it's really hard Because if someone texts me, I have time to understand what's happening and like process and grieve without having to like be in front of you while I'm processing the information. I think when people tell you in person, I understand that they're coming from a really good, genuine, like want to share this information with you and be there to support you at the same time. But for me, I just can't, like I can't handle it in person. Like I just have to walk away or just be like, that's really wonderful. Like, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> and <then laughs> I need you to talk for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, I am so happy for my friends yeah. who are pregnant. Like, it's just in the moment, I'm a little frustrated. How is it so easy for you? <laughs> yeah. And you deserve all the happiness and you deserve to be a mom. And like, I, I want them to have the same feeling. But at the same time, I think I'm just really jealous. That's all. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I do think that there's, there's got to be space for both. Like you can't pretend one side or the other exists. They, they both exist. But I will tell you, that is an example of, I think, why I say things like, when I talk about vulnerability and my perception of your vulnerability, is that you, you want to show strength first or like be vulnerable in private sometimes. Yeah. Like, I don't think that I would break down and cry in front of you if you told me. I right. might do it after we hang up on the phone. Right. <laughs> and maybe you'd mention it later, just like in a text. Yeah, like, like oh, I cried all night. I yeah, like, some I, <laughs> I just like cried myself to sleep. But I'm really yeah. happy for you. That's how you do. You're like, I just ate three pounds of chocolate and cried myself to sleep. How's your day? What's up? And I'm like, yeah. what? Oh my gosh. Well, I look forward to talking to you also when I start my own journey to motherhood, whatever that may bring. Whatever. Um, You're already a mom. Stop it. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you for sharing openly with me and with others. And I'm definitely going to like keep a journal of other questions <laughs> that come up. Please do. I'm happy to answer them. You know, you can ask me anything. Do you have any questions or is there something you want to talk about? reach out and let's chat. Follow me on Instagram at fried underscore eggs underscore podcast. 